0: servant, Pastor Frank, today, as we open your word. Father, may your word go out with power, with strength. May it convict us where we need conviction. May it encourage us where we need encouragement. But Father, most importantly, may it change lives. Father, you have said your word will not go out void, that it will produce fruit, that it will produce good fruit, that it will bring people out of darkness into light. Father, that is our prayer today. As the truth of your word is spoken, Father, with many people uh, gathered today in, in a congregation this size, Lord, I know there may be many who do not know you. And Father, we pray that today that your spirit Will do that work that only he can do as your, the truth of your word goes out, that it will convict those who are separated from you. Lord, that it will do the work in their lives to bring them in the conviction that they are not whole, that they need something. And, Father, may they see that that need is you and your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, do that work that only you can do in their lives today, and we will glorify your name for it. Father, I know there are most probably many gathered here today, Lord, each who are going through what they feel are unique circumstances in life. Father, there may be many who are suffering through relational problems, whether with their spouses or or co-workers or friends or family. Lord, we do pray for reconciliation in their lives. Father, there may be many here who are struggling through financial troubles. Father, who feel that their future is bleak, that there is no hope, that they cannot see what tomorrow will bring. Father, may they turn to you in their situations. Father, may they be drawn closer to you. May they put their trust in you, their hope in you, and may their faith grow in you that you have promised to provide for their every needs. Father, again, thank you for your good gifts. We recognize that all good gifts come from above. And, Father, thank you for grace on the Ashley, and the the, the powerful work you are doing here uh, through this body. Lord, continue to grow us in unity and love and obedience. And, Father, help us to share that unconditional love that you have so graciously shown us to others around us. Give us opportunities each and every day, Lord, to be good stewards of the message of good news. Help us to be bold in our witness, Lord, to use those opportunities to speak the truth of the good news of the gospel to the people who you bring into our lives. Father, again, thank you for all that you do. And Lord, all that you are about to do in the upcoming days that you give us. Again, speak through your servant Frank, and may it produce good fruit. And we'll give you all the glory for it. And we ask these things in your son's holy and precious name, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Amen.
1: Turn your Bibles, please, to John chapter 8. I was thinking this week, if you are a guest today or you've been visiting for uh, some time, you might not know how we do this co-pastor thing, especially recently because um, our preaching schedule has been a little off. Um, Typically, um, Pastor Greg and I go two weeks on and two weeks off. That gives you a break from somebody. Um, And yet, uh, for the first time in the history of our church, which is only, what, three and a half years old, um, our schedules are such that the latter part of this year that we've had to take off larger chunks of time. And so he's shared through all of um, chapter 8 for the last four weeks or so, <clears throat> maybe part of seven before we got to that. You'll pray for him. He begins chaplaincy school today at Fort Jackson, um, which I, I lived in Columbia. I really wish they'd held that chaplaincy school in July so he'd get a real taste of <laughs> the heat in Columbia. I've met guys that did boot camp there and. They said, you know, I was in the desert of Iraq, and it's hotter in Columbia, South Carolina. Um, So, but so far so good. He's going to have decent weather, but keep him in your prayers as he goes through that for the next month. And uh, we'll look forward to him coming back. I got a little ring up here. Now, the great... Bible commentator William Barclay uh, called the 8th (laughs) chapter... Sorry, I just thought of something. Early in my ministry when I started preaching, in my notes it just said Barclay, and I had a quote for William Barclay, and I said to my congregation, (laughs) Greg, you know what I'm saying, don't you? The the great Bible commentator Charles Barclay said... (laughs) I couldn't figure out why they were laughing. <laughs> William Barclay, great Bible commentator, called the eighth chapter of John a chapter which passes from lightning flash to lightning flash of astonishment. And that's true. When we come to the end of that chapter, You know, you think of chapter 6, and you think of chapter 10, and you think of chapter 17, you think of some of these, chapter 1, these chapters that come to mind when you think of the Gospel of John, which we haven't really studied in depth, chapter 8, and it's been a blessing to go through it these last few weeks. It's the end of this dialogue that Jesus and the Jewish leaders are having at the end of the Feast of Tabernacles, and All along, we see as he speaks to them, the hostility sort of crank up more and more and more. And part of it is because he's declaring who he is. He's he's declaring the way of salvation and um, he's declaring, revealing to them the sin in their lives and those sorts of things and. You know, my doctrine of salvation may be different from yours, but I do, I'm sure that um, believers must agree on the fact that Jesus is sovereign. Can we agree on that, believers? Like I said, my doctrine of salvation may be different from yours, but we can agree that Jesus is sovereign. I feel like Pastor Greg asking questions. And you don't have to believe the doctrine of salvation as I believe it, but you must be saved by the Lord Jesus Christ and Him only, or spend eternity in hell. And that's hard. And the message that Jesus is delivering here is the message that you're either a child of God, he's telling them, but he's telling us too. You're either a child of God or you're a child of the devil. There's no in between. And that's hard. That's hard to say. And I'll take it a step further. Some of you here today are children of the devil. That saddens me. It's hard to say, but it's truth. Further, it's hard for me to say at the beginning of a sermon because you'll probably just cut me off. Not hear the rest of the message. Wouldn't it be nice if he began all his sermons with a sweet little story? This whole chapter is really about darkness and light. This this entire gospel is about light and darkness. Those are the only two options. Paul tells us there, none is righteous. No, not one. You can only be made righteous by the Lord God. The only other option... Were that not to happen, is that you are a child of the devil. And that's the point that creates the hostility between Jesus and these Jewish leaders. Let's look at today's text. Verse 48. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? So you thought my introduction was harsh. And Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. You have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you, but I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? Abraham. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. That's the penalty for blasphemy, death by stoning. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Has been this ongoing conversation. For the most part, it's been a civil dialogue. And that's how it works. You know, you've all been a part of something like that. You talk and you disagree and you explain yourself. But then when things aren't settled, it goes to another level, it gets a little emotional. And then you begin to argue and you express your disagreement in a more heated conversation. And then there seems to be some sort of an impasse and the emotions have risen as high as they can rise. And then you resort to what? Name calling. And here we are. You're a Samaritan, as if that's bad. You have a demon And at the end of all of that, sometimes that dialogue turns into violence. And that's what we see here. We see the truth about Jesus' pre-existence, his relationship to Abraham, his own deity. And the more truth he speaks about those things, then the heat is increased in this conversation. And the more truth and light about Jesus that is revealed and it comes from his lips, the more error and darkness of the false religion rises up and attacks. The truth of chapter 1, verse 5 is portrayed here. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. You can see that, can't you? Just curious. You see, every religion claims to represent God on some level. And Jesus is saying every other religion just really represents Satan. He's making it clear here in this passage and it's clear today. That unless your faith testifies to coming to know God through faith in Jesus Christ, everything else is false. Or as Jesus put it, a lie. We saw that in verse 44. Pastor Greg preached last week. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Jesus is telling, him, that's who you're following. The father of lies. That verse sort of takes it to the peak. It's downhill from there. So he's saying the most explosive thing that he could possibly say to these Jewish leaders who prided themselves as children of Abraham and hence children of God. Convinced that they were the ones who represented God. Yet Jesus said, you are of your father, the devil. We look at the great, a great insult. Today, we'll look at a great revelation. And if we get there, we'll look at a great sovereign Lord. First, we see that attack. A.W. Pink said this was plain admission that they were able, unable to answer the Lord, completely vanquished in argument. They resort to vulgar and blasphemous declamation. J.C. Ryle says, to lose temper and call names is a common sign of a defeated cause. Violent language is a favorite weapon of the devil. And after earlier words in this chapter, they become harder and harder, and and the Jews become angrier and angrier, and they become bitterer. And that's not a word, but it should be, bitterer and bitterer. And we see it again, John ten twenty. Many of them said he has a demon and is insane. Why well, listen to him? It's the standard statement about Jesus and even his disciples. Matthew eleven eighteen. John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. Mark three twenty-two, and the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He's possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons, he cast out the demons. Beelzebul is another term for Satan. And here, John eight forty-eight, 48, and Jesus answered them, Are we not right saying that you're a Samaritan and you have a demon? When the power of truth can't be directly opposed, then... People always resort to character defamation, character assassination. And we see that even today. Even even the life and teachings of Jesus today are slandered more, more than we see it in the Word. Especially by this, uh, this um, liberal misinterpretation that only relates to the humanity of Jesus and not to his divinity. So we see that in our culture today. And they're saying, you can't be a true Jew. You just must be like a pagan, referring to Samaritans. We'll have nothing to do with you. And, you know, in some cultures today, this is true. It was certainly true back in those days that dishonoring someone is practically inexcusable. Wars have been waged to restore the honor of a dishonored person. Saving face and restoring honor can become a life quest for some people. A demon possessed Samaritan, that's what you are. The only place in the Bible Jesus is called a Samaritan. Like I said, as if that was a bad thing, it wasn't bad to him because he never even addressed it. But in light of the holy presence of Jesus Christ, let alone his words, just in the light of his presence, it exposes and judges all their ungodliness. John three nineteen and twenty, and this is the judgment. the light has come into the world. People love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. And that's more reason why it's impossible for us to be neutral about Jesus Christ, isn't it? Can't be neutral. About Christ, the reason that we're not neutral is because that our our very natures have a definite bias toward hating God. and then when the Holy God appears before us in the form of his Son, it's impossible for our response to be neutral. When Jesus confronts us. Even without saying a word, we stand condemned in the purity of his holy presence. And so it's important that you learn here and now. Because it's only going to get worse. We should not be surprised as believers when we're attacked. Darkness Hates the light. J.C. Rowell also says, Let us learn here how little cause Christians have to be surprised if hard names and insulting epithets are applied to them. It is only what was done to their master and is not ground for discouragement in doing God's work. It's good and true. If you got into this Christianity thing because you thought it would be a bed of roses, you're in for a rude awakening. It's hard. And if you're obedient, you will be attacked. And they will call you names. And not too far from now, it'll be even worse than that. And many times it will even come from within the institutional church. This happens to Jesus. It happens to God's servants. Maybe even it's happened to you. It will happen to you. You stand up for truth and you'll be called names. And it's hard to deal with. And we want to say, words will never hurt me. But they do. No wonder David said... Psalm 120, deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. And I think my last rile quote, so as long as he serves the world and walks in the broad way, little is perhaps said against him. Once let him take up the cross and follow Christ. And there's no lie too monstrous, no story too absurd For some to tell against him and for others to believe. And so Jesus defends that attack. I'll paraphrase it for you. He says, In saying that I have a devil, that's not true. I'm simply honoring my Father, delivering His message to the world. And your attacks are dishonoring me and in turn dishonoring my father. Your insults not only hit me, but they hit my father as well. Doesn't even addressed the Samaritan thing. He, he, He denies the second attack. That he has a demon. And adds that he honors the father. Someone who's controlled by the devil is a liar, but Christ has told them the truth, is what he's saying. Someone who's prompted by the devil is going to flatter man. But Christ has talked about their fallen nature and the sin in their lives. Someone who's serving the devil is just full of Pride seeks his own honor, seeks his own fame, but Christ sought only the honor of the Father. And notice how calm he is. This has been going on for some time, this dialogue. And he, he's God. He knows it's getting worse. Notice a good lesson for us. Notice how calm and self-controlled he is in answering these questions. How dignified the response is, how simple the answers are, how solemn the answers are, how unruffled he is, how patient he is with his attackers. Be patient with your attackers. Now, martyrdom might be a calling for some people, but it's not a calling for most people. So if they do start throwing rocks, you can run. He didn't give them back the same stuff that they gave him. 1 Peter 2.23, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. If I was seeking my own glory... I'd be saying things that wouldn't tick you off so much. If I wanted to seek my own glory, I think I'd just tickle your ears a little bit and move on and maybe only preach 10 minutes. If I was seeking my own glory, I wouldn't be standing here doing my best to proclaim the truth. I do not seek my glory, Jesus says. I gave up my glory. And we see that best in Philippians 2. Did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Emptied himself, taking the form of a servant born in the likeness of man. Being found in human form, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I do not seek my own glory. That's a great principle. Great principle for all of us today true messenger of God, will never seek their own glory. That's a great way for you to judge those who are preaching and those who are teaching. You only seek to glorify God. And you're evaluating preachers and teachers and self-appointed prophets and apostles. You can even evaluate them by the names that they call themselves prophets and apostles as if they exist. There's just one who seeks it, and he is the judge, Jesus says. Secondly, we see a great revelation, which continues a conversation that Pastor Greg talked about last week. Truly true, verse 51. Truly, truly, I say to you. Now, it's truly, truly. He says this 25 times in the Gospel of John. That means wake up, listen, pay attention. This is important. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. (laughs) Isn't that a great promise? Right here in the middle of all this hostility, right in the middle of all this grief that he's getting from the Jewish leaders, right in the middle of what he knows is going to become maybe a physical encounter, he's got a word of grace. If anyone keeps my word, He'll never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know you're nuts. No, they didn't say that. Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham dies did the prophets, yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he'll never taste death. They didn't use the same word, by the way. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do do you make yourself out to be? He responds to sovereign rule over death. What wonderful encouragement for us. Keep my words. You'll never see death. What a claim. Eternal life for everyone who keeps his word. Truly. Truly. Come closer. I'm getting ready to say something really powerful. Truly. Truly. And John MacArthur reminds us how we are to live in this world based on all these truths. That the abuse comes and the blasts come and the blasphemy comes. And what do we do? We respond with what? Truth. The truth. We just keep talking truth, and we end with a gracious invitation. You see that? He's talking all this truth. They've got their blood pressures going up quite a bit. They're all upset about it. And he, he, with the truth, and he delivers this wonderful invitation. Keep my words, you'll never see death. For, uh, for, important for us to remember this is for those who keep his word. We can't ever apply this verse to people who simply profess Christ outwardly. Those who are active in church, those who prayed the prayer, but are not true believers. Who are the true believers? Well, Pastor Greg shared that message with us last week. Turn back to verse 31. True believers are those who abide in him. Abide in Christ. Go ahead and put them all up, JP. Here, comprehend, believe the truth, experience true freedom. Live lives marked by obedience to Christ. Love Jesus. I love it too when you can steal somebody else's slide. You see that? Verse 31. Said to the Jews... Who believed in him? Well, it wasn't deep, true belief. If you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples. And you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And they answered, we're the offspring of Abraham, never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you'll become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits a sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The Son remains forever. So if the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. Amen? Those are the ones who keep His Word. Who keep it, who believe it, who receive it, who obeys it, who lives by it, remaining and abiding in His Word, holding fast to His doctrine and His teaching. That person will never, ever see death. George Beasley Murray, great old professor at Southern Seminary. The assurance relates to life which physical death cannot extinguish. So to the death of the spirit, the believer receives eternal life, i.e. the life of the kingdom of God, over which death has no power and which is destined for resurrection. And so he's saying, whether you hear me or not, whether you choose me or not, I'm telling you the truth that anyone who receives, who believes, who keeps my teaching will never see death. Listen to me, despised and rejected as I am by you, life or death, heaven or hell, blessing or cursing, all hinge on you receiving my message the message I proclaim to you, because I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And I'm telling you this one last time. To keep my saying is the way to escape death. John 6:47. truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. And you might say, what does he mean by seeing death? What does he mean by that? Because we do die, our bodies die. John MacArthur did have a wonderful illustration about that. He was visiting a lady in the hospital who had just had major surgery. And she was not going to live. And he said, "What's going on through your heart and your mind?" She said, "Well, I'm just a little bit afraid." He said, that's understandable. You know, we've all heard that expression. I'm not afraid of death. I just don't want to be there when it comes. MacArthur said, I understand. Let me just tell you in a simple way to explain it. You just had a big surgery and when you went in, they got you all ready. They put a tube in your arm. Then they inject a little twilight sleep thing in there. And you just felt calm and you felt peaceful and you felt completely at ease. And next thing you know, you're awake. <laughs> and it was over. That's how death's going to be for the believer. you suffer with your disease or struggle with this body and this life. Paul calls it this tent in which we groan. And yet at that moment, the Lord pours into us a massive dose of joy and peace and calm, and you'll wake up in heaven. You'll not see death. You will not see death. Believer, you will not see death. And that's important. That's not the primary issue. The primary issue is that you will not see the second death, eternal death. That's our invitation to those people we witness, too. What are you going to say to them when they come and blaspheme the gospel and they attack the gospel? You're going to give them the truth. The truth is going to be painful and it's going to hurt. And they're going to want to attack you and they're going to want to call you names. And you say to them, you're going to be judged. You're going to be judged for this attitude because you hate God. That's the truth. You don't use those words necessarily. You use different words in different situations. But you need to believe the message of Jesus Christ. And if you believe the message of Jesus Christ, you'll never see death. Especially, you'll never see the second death. Eternity in hell. Augustine said. The death from which our Lord came to deliver us was the second death, eternal death, the death of hell, the death of damnation with the devil and his angels. That is indeed death, for this death of ours is only a migration. I love that. Jesus said to her in John eleven twenty five, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And so they challenge him. you say those things, you'll escape death. Now we know you're nuts. Now we know you're deranged. Now we know you have a demon. This is proof. We saw this conversation begin back in verse 33. When they said we're the offspring of Abraham. Verse 37, I know that you're the offspring of Abraham. Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. And they answered in 39, Abraham is our father. And this conversation's going on and on and on. And it stops for a little while and then they pick it back up. Abraham returns to the focus in this ongoing dispute. Except the intensity has been ratcheted up a little bit. See, Jesus challenges their morality based on their comparison with Abraham. And now he's made a claim for himself, which, if true, would raise Jesus Christ above Abraham. He was their father. The greatest prop that Judaism has to lean on is being pushed away from them. Nobody likes it when that happens. The reason that Abraham, they reason that Abraham heard and obeyed the word of God, yet he died. The prophets died. They heard and obeyed. They taught the word of God. They died too. Jesus suggests that your word is superior to Abraham and the prophets. Somehow makes you deranged. And that your word would keep us from seeing death or tasting death when all the great prophets died? It's preposterous. Must be demonic delusion. They didn't really understand what Jesus said. We can tell by their response, because he wasn't talking about physical death. In spite of their greatness, Abraham and the prophets did die. Jesus' rule over, his claim to rule over death above Abraham qualifies him to be insane. And, and yet they choose, they, they determine that the two options are really the only two options you have. They, they, they determine this rightly. (laughs) He is either who he says he is or he is insane. C.S. Lewis said that, remember? And so they say, who do you make yourself out to be? Well, he knew who he was. He knew who they were. For the last chapter, he's compared them to murderers and adulterers and carnal souls and guilty sinners and devilish and liars. And they resent having their sin exposed. And then he responds to his relationship with his father as we see this great revelation. The knowledge of God is most fundamental. Jesus said in 54, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. The knowledge of God is most, the most fundamental to humans. Especially the characteristic of holiness, of oneness or unity, of sovereignty. But the problem with that statement that I just made to you is that even Satan believes those things. Even, even Satan knows. God's holiness and God's oneness and God's sovereignty. James 2.19, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So what's necessary is a righteous and vital union with God himself in order to know him. And Jesus has that. The demons don't know about that union with God. So this is the mark of a true child of God. It's a union that even the demons do not have. Jesus says, I have that. And you Jewish leaders don't. I don't honor myself. If I did, it would be worthless. The one who honors me is the one who's commissioned me to speak the truth. And to deliver you from death. My father does this. The same father you call your God. The God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Who's put this honor on me. That life or death depend on the keeping of my words. Believing on me. And we see that honor. Throughout Scripture, the Father loves the Son in such a way that he honors him in all different settings. God honored him at his birth by sending his angels to sing glory to God in the highest. For you is born this day. He honored him during the days of the early days of his life on earth by directing the wise men from the east to come and bring gifts and to worship him. He honored Him at His baptism when He proclaimed Him to be His beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. He honored Him at His ascension and exalted Him at His own right hand. And He's going to honor Him in the final judgment when every knee shall bow and every tongue shall profess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Hallelujah. Throughout eternity He'll be... Honored by a redeemed people, the church. Infinitely worthy is the Lamb to receive honor and glory. And your father, verse 56, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. What does he mean by that? you Every single commentator has different ideas of what he actually means by Abraham seeing Christ's day. Here's sort of a three-part answer I think would be helpful to you. First, Abraham saw the day of Christ by faith. And this was not strange. You see, the Jews, or at least some of these Jews in their teaching, had some understanding that Abraham saw a messianic time. But then Jesus messed things up when he said that he would see my day. That's what gets them riled up. And so this was right so far. Abraham saw the day of Christ by faith in the promises of God. Those promise, what are those promises? We see that all through Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11, 13, these all died, talking about Abraham and the the fathers. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. A couple of verses earlier, verse 10, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Verse 16, but as it is, they desire a better country, that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And so by faith, they look forward to the promises of God. That's number one. Secondly, Abraham saw the day of Jesus Christ in a type. What was the type, you know? Isaac. On the altar, receiving him back from the dead, so to speak. Marvelous foreshadowing of, of the Savior, of a Lamb being provided for God's people. So he saw him in the type. And then thirdly, just by special revelation, the secret of the Lord that he gives to those who fear him, those who know him. Those who worship Him. There's no doubt that in the mind of God, was He was pleased to show the Old Testament saints, Abraham and the prophets, the fathers and the prophets, much more of His covenant with them than we suppose that they possibly knew. Psalm 25, verse 14, the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear Him. And He makes known to them His covenant. And so Saul... Abraham saw the day of Jesus by faith in the promises of God. He saw in the type of of this sacrifice of his son, Isaac, and he saw by special revelation. So that's what he means. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. Now, J.C. Ryle, I lied. One more J.C. Ryle quote. He saw many things, but through a glass darkly, we need not doubt. He didn't see it as we see it. And he could have explained fully the whole manner and circumstances of our Lord's sacrifice on Calvary. We're not obliged to suppose. but We need not shrink from believing that he saw in a far distance a redeemer whose advent would finally make all the earth rejoice. And as he saw it, he was glad plain truth is we're not too apt to forget that there never was but one way to salvation, one Savior and one hope for sinners. And that Abraham and all the Old Testament saints look to the same Christ that we look to ourselves. And then lastly, we see this great sovereign Lord. So the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old. 50 years was... We see back in the book of Numbers, 50 years was when a Levite was released from duty. Don't get any ideas. You're not 50 years old yet. You've seen Abraham. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you before Abraham was, and this is this is. The straw that broke the camel's back. I am. They understood his claim for, to pre-existence to Abraham because of what he said in verse 57. You're not 50 years. You're not old enough yet. And so this doesn't, this, this doesn't compute. And yet in verse 58, truly I say to you before Abraham was, I am the most unqualified confession of Jesus Christ. That he is essentially and eternally Yahweh, Jehovah, the Lord God. Stouffer. German commentator says the phrase harbors within itself the most authentic, the most audacious, the most profound affirmation by Jesus of who he was. And you know, that's hard for us, and it's hard for them to extend the present into the past. That's a challenge for us, isn't it? Or at least in my mind, it is. I don't think in those terms, extending the present into the past. We're always looking forward. It's just confusing to think that way. Unfortunately, God doesn't fit into my little pea brain. The Jews on this day understood what he was saying. Oh, they understood. And it was blasphemous, and they couldn't tolerate it. Death was the penalty for blasphemy. Here's that climactic declaration of this discourse going throughout the Feast of Tabernacles where he is. Jesus having continuous existence even at the very beginning. Remember that in chapter 1? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. makes him higher, better, greater than Abraham, who was born in time. Jesus the Eternal trumps the temporal Abraham. When Abraham was nothing, all things came into being through Jesus. When Abraham was nothing, Jesus was gloriously existing in the bosom of the Father. And he uses the name for himself that God uses for himself in Exodus. That's God's name. The Jews are thinking, you said, you called yourself I Am. That's God's name. Moses say, I go to the Israelites, who shall I Tell them, sent me. And he says, Say, I am that I am, sent me. The great I am. That's how John began. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And this is more than they can handle. Much more. And they pick up stones. Listen to this. They pick up stones to kill the very one who delivered them from captivity in Egypt. (laughs) Fifteen hundred years earlier. And the fact that they picked up stones means they understood exactly what he was saying. Exactly in their eyes how blasphemous he was. Claiming to be God. So what happens? So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. How could that happen? I'm sure if you all picked up stones right now to throw at me, I couldn't get out of here before at least I got hit by one. Well, it happened like it happened back in chapter 7, verse 30, because his hour had not yet come. Remember, Jesus' enemies could not do anything to him until his hour for suffering had come. When he was finally taken prisoner six months after this, roughly six months after this day we're talking about now, he's finally Taken prisoner and arrested by Pilate and crucified. It was not because he couldn't escape. But because he wouldn't escape. Jesus could have done at the crucifixion the very same thing he did in this passage. He got ready to hang him on the cross, but Jesus hid himself and went out to the temple. No. It's not that he couldn't. It's that he wouldn't. Because the cross was his hour. And in your place, it was as if he just laid on that cross himself. Because he could have escaped. He laid on that cross himself and he drove the nails all by himself. All for you, for me. Remarkable theme through this whole chapter is very strong here at the end. Jesus is in perfect unity with the Father because he himself is God. And those who reject Jesus reject God because they have rejected their spiritual parentage. And because their spiritual parentage is not of God. God. Your spiritual parentage is of utmost importance to you. And it's only revealed by your response to Jesus Christ. Do you hear me? Who's your spiritual father? You prove it by your actions as well as by claiming his words, obeying his words responding to his words and in this case on this particular day all the Jews could either do or repent or believe that's our only option today the same is true for us he's either who he says he is Or he isn't. You're either a child of God. Or a child of the devil. Come to him today. Come to him today. Don't put it off any longer. Come. Come to Jesus. Let's pray. In a moment, we'll sing a hymn. During that hymn, our elders will be in the back. If you have questions, you need someone to pray with you, you want to come to Jesus and talk to somebody about it, I encourage you to make your way back there during this song. Would you do that? Father, we thank you for your word, the truth of your word. We pray, O Lord, that you would pierce our hearts with your word. Use us for your glory. Make us what you want us to be. Shape us and mold us, Lord, and send us out to proclaim your truth, no matter what the consequences are, what price we have to pay. Proclaim through us your great truth. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen.